This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Zach Rausch, your host from Heterodox Academy. For the past few months at Heterodox Academy, we've been exploring a range of perspectives on the philosophy, purpose, and effectiveness of diversity-related training in the context of higher education. In this episode, a recording of our virtual event that took place in May of this year. It's called A Deep Dive into DEI, Research, Interventions, and Alternatives. The moderator is Alana Redstone, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our panel includes leading experts on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Frank Dobbin, Professor of Social Sciences at Harvard University, Edward Chang, Assistant Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and Garrett Johnson, co-founder and executive director of the Lincoln Network. Alana kicks off the discussion with a brief introduction. We'll be exploring DEI programming effectiveness, what the research reveals, and what successful alternative approaches might look like. So one of the things that I think makes sense to start off with is to just get a little bit of a lay of the land. And when we're talking about sort of traditional DEI programming or traditional DEI training, what are the goals of these programs? And I will call on someone, I will call on Edward. Yes, when we think about traditional DEI programming, this evokes a lot of stereotypes, even in a lot of people's minds. So you think about things like corporate diversity training, which I think many people have an assumption that's maybe a little stodgy. Maybe it's often about compliance or trying to avoid legal scrutiny. More recently, I think a lot of diversity training in organizations or DEI programs focuses on things like implicit bias or unconscious bias. I mean, broadly, with these sorts of trainings and education programs, I think the goal underlying them, at least the explicit intention, is one that many people would get behind, which is the idea of we want to try to make our organizations diverse, inclusive, where all people, regardless of their identities or backgrounds, feel like they can thrive in organizations. I think the challenge is the way that many of these programs are actually implemented maybe falls short of these lofty aspirations. That's largely what we think about when we're thinking about traditional DEI programming, but of course there are also many other sorts of DEI programming, things like employee resource groups, mentoring programs in the workplace, et cetera. But I think largely these are all have the goal of trying to make all people feel included and to feel like they can thrive in organizations. Mm-hmm. Garrett, Frank, do you wanna build on what Edward said? Yeah, I'll defer to Frank. They are the, uh, the academics here. Well, if you, if you think about the history of these programs, they were initiated in the early 1960s after John F. Kennedy in 1961 required firms with federal contracts to do something to stop discriminating against people of color, especially black and Hispanic people. Um, he was really fo- focusing on the civil rights movement at the time. And so a bunch of companies at about the same time banded together and started to put in similar sorts of diversity programs or what they were calling equal opportunity programs. Mm -hmm. One of the first things companies did was to put in um, unconscious bias training. They didn't call it exactly that in those days, but um, when Elliot Richardson, who was the Secretary of Health Education and Welfare in the late 60s, put in a big training program for everybody 
all the managers at HEW, he pointed out that unconscious bias is a big problem in the workplace because it causes discrimination and we need to address it. So I feel like the kinds of training that we're seeing today are the great grandchildren of the training modules that were being put into place in the early 1960s. And a bunch of the programs, including some of the things that Edward mentioned, like mentoring programs, uh, date back to that era. The, the earliest employee resources groups that I know of um, appeared at Xerox in the late 1960s. Um, and some firms have had those kinds of programs for around for a long time. I think the my point here is just that we've had a lot of experience with these programs. And mm -hmm. I would just echo that companies and universities put them in for several different reasons. Sometimes legal compliance is the main thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the CEO really wants to change what the workplace looks like. What's, what I find discouraging is that um, some of the programs that are most popular, like conventional uh, diversity training, rules to prevent managers from discriminating in, when they make hiring decisions, like by forcing them to use job tests, for example, mm -hmm. or like grievance procedures to process civil rights complaints. Some of these things haven't been shown to work either in lab studies or in the real world to work in terms of actually increasing workforce diversity. So I find that as somebody who's been studying this for decades, I, I just find that discouraging. We're doing a lot of the things that are pretty well known not to work. So do you think it's accurate to say that the, the goal of the programs is largely, I mean, I could imagine it being sort of twofold in the sense that one is to think about shaping sort of high, I mean, maybe sort of touching hiring practices or if there's unconscious bias that's, that's, that's presenting as a barrier to hiring a diverse workforce, sort of working on that problem. And then a separate issue related is about creating a particular kind of environment um, that's, I guess that's more the inclusion side. Do you think that that, that sort of accurately describes what some of the goals are? So I'll jump in and, and just, um, I'll answer your question in just a second, Alana, but yeah. the historical context that Frank offered uh, is very helpful uh, because it points to uh, an effort uh, by elected officials to encourage a certain type of behavior. Uh, but, you know, I worked in Washington, D.C. in the Senate, uh, lots of friends who worked in the House uh, and in the White House uh, across multiple administrations, uh, you know, conservative, Republican, Democrat, liberal, uh, and, uh, and those institutions have been among the most uh, lacking in diversity. Uh, of any institutions in the country. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you have these, uh, these efforts uh, to, to push behavior in a certain direction uh, and, the, and the decision makers who are uh, you know, putting these dictates uh, into law uh, or into sort of socializing them into uh, everyday practice aren't able to model uh, uh, that behavior. And this was just a decade ago when I worked uh, mm -hmm. in, the, uh, in the Senate. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, um, and so the the historical context it's helpful. Uh, when I left Washington D.C., I moved to Silicon Valley, uh, which uh, is another area uh, of of elite organizations uh, that have uh, struggled with diversity. But what was interesting when I arrived 
in late 2011, early 2012, uh, was this was the beginning uh, among the uh, Web 2.0 uh, tech companies and aggressively trying to promote uh, uh, DEI. Mm -hmm. uh, and for reasons that Edward mentioned, you know, checking the box, avoiding lawsuits. But mm -hmm. I think there was this general ethos that, you know, we, we need to bring more people from diverse backgrounds, uh, ethnicities, race, uh, et cetera, uh, to the table. They were getting pressure from the outside uh, and, they, and they wanted to, to res respond. You know, there's debate on how, how sincere those efforts were. There's certainly debate regarding how effective uh, they have been, and, and we'll talk about that now. Uh, but, but in general, yes, uh, the, the goal of, uh, of, of trying to make sure that companies uh, you know, have healthy cultures and environments where people can thrive. That has been a, a driving force behind uh, mm -hmm. a lot of this effort. So when we're talking about um, current diversity training programs and diversity training, diversity programming in general, we've got a little bit of a historical perspective. What characteristics do they share at this point? How would you, how do you think about that in terms of what are there common things that they, they are there, are there components that many of them seem to have in common? I mean, I would say, so from a very cynical perspective, that one thing that many of these programs share is that for the most part, they're not evidence-based. Mm -hmm. uh, that partly it's, it can be very challenging to actually test the effectiveness of different programs, things mm -hmm. like diversity training or mentoring programs. Uh, in general, it's very hard to do these sorts of this, the sorts of social science necessary to actually test the effectiveness. Right. And so, I think a lot of these things are, as Frank talked about, you know, historical programs, where a lot of companies maybe just continue doing them because they acknowledge, regardless of their intentions, they potentially they acknowledge that they want to do something around mm -hmm. diversity, inclusion, belonging. They don't know exactly what to do, and so they do what other companies have done in the past, what they've seen in the past. But for the most part, these practices aren't necessarily evidence-based in terms of saying, you know, this is actually going to be effective at actually increasing diversity, actually increasing the rates of promotion of underrepresented groups. Uh, so that's a very, unfortunately, cynical take as one common feature of many of these programs. Mm -hmm. Can I just underscore that um, while these programs are not mostly evidence-based, the programs that companies put into place, there is plenty of evidence. So it would not be hard to, and some companies have been doing this, to pivot from doing what they've always done or what mm -hmm. the industry leader does, because a lot of companies will follow Facebook and Google no matter what they do, right off mm -hmm. the cliff, to uh, doing the things that have been proven effective in other firms or in studies. So for example, Edward has some work on diversity training programs suggesting that they may not really change people's behavior and change people's attitudes. Um, if we know that the, the existing modules we have aren't really doing anything, I, I'm just perplexed at why we keep doing them, except that companies want to appear to be doing something and it's easier to just keep doing what you've been doing, even if it's, even if it's not really working. Well, I was going to just uh, ask Frank, uh, can you speak to uh, the body of literature that has developed around uh, the effectiveness uh, of, of these 
um, uh, efforts, interventions. Uh, when when has that work really started to 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 grow and and start to get, be recognized? Because um, you know, as I was talking to uh, companies uh, in you know 2017, 2018, uh, there was just a lack of awareness of what worked, what didn't, uh, you know, what were best practices. Uh, so uh, you know, there's certainly um, on the operational level, uh, there seems to be uh, a lack of awareness uh, of the right tool. So when, when did when did you know a lot of this uh, research and and information about what works, what doesn't, when did that you know start to to gain traction and gain attention? Well, I think that that the first survey of uh, anti-bias training efforts was was a, a study published by a sociologist Robin Williams Jr., not the actor from Cornell in 1947. And he reviewed, I think about 15 studies um, that use different methods to evaluate the effects of anti-bias training. And the results were disappointing across all of the studies. And those studies found it very difficult to change biases um, as measured before and after, or as measured in the experimental group and in the control group. So, I do think that, especially for anti-bias training, we've had a lot of evidence for many years. There was, in 2009, there was a very good um, survey of, I think, 985 studies in this domain by Betsy Levy Palak and Donald Green, a psychologist and a political scientist, mm -hmm. uh, showing very uh, discouraging results for the effects of uh, anti-bias training efforts. So I think I think companies don't want to know that there's good evidence that what they're doing isn't working. Um, and it, it is, you know, I, I would put a little bit of it on the consultants who purvey strategies because they, because some of the things that they they like to sell to companies don't look like they work. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want to present the evidence for, for that, but. Um... So I, let me ask a question. So a couple of things I just want to follow up on based on your answers. So one of the things, Edward, that you said was when I asked what they have in common um, is that they're not, you said sort of, unfortunately, they're not evidence-based, um, which is, yeah, which, which is certainly unfortunate that would seem like and as Frank pointed out that would seem like a fairly easy thing to do given the amount of research that's out there now um, the other the other way of thinking about that question is are there in terms of the training themselves like just in thinking about the landscape one of the things and correct me if I'm wrong I you know I'm I have one employer where I go through diversity training on my myself on my own campus so I don't have a wide range of experience but my sense is that there are some common threads in terms of what the content of the programming in the sense that I think most diversity programming at this point probably contains a component on microaggressions. I assume that there's a component on unconscious bias. Um, I'm, those are sort of the two big ones that jump out at me. Am I, is, is, do you think that's safe to say? Is that fair to say based on what you've observed? I mean, I think in recent years, unconscious yeah. bias and implicit bias has become a huge focus of many of right. these trainings. Right. I think there are a lot of reasons why this may be. Uh, partly it's due to, uh, I think, some popular, popular science that has popularized some of these notions. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think, and on the social science side, also 
tools, for example, like the implicit association tests that purportedly allow us to measure people's levels of implicit bias. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge with some of this, some of this focus on implicit bias is that the research that I've seen that I think is kind of the best research on implicit bias, it's not necessarily that obvious what it means to change, well, one, what it really means to change people's implicit biases. And two, if you do successfully change people's implicit biases, what consequences that has for people's behaviors in, for example, the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I think that for the most part, when we, presumably if these companies are thinking about implementing some sort of training, some sort of diversity program, programming, it's that they want to somehow change the behavior of their employees, their managers, to make their culture, to make their workplaces more inclusive. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily obvious how this focus on implicit bias whether that will actually lead to changes in people's behaviors if you believe that the current behaviors are somehow not ideal. Right. Frank or Garrett, did you want to add on that? After you, Garrett. I agree with, uh, with you know, everything that, uh, that Edward said. Um, you know, it, it yes, uh, you know, a focus on implicit bias, uh, unconscious bias. Um, um, but, but, you know, my, my concern is, is as uh, was mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of what's focused on or, or talked about, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, socially uh, is, uh, is really driven by, by trends at big tech companies. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the, the uh, big tech companies in Silicon Valley primarily uh, since, you know, 2010, 2011 uh, have really been driving uh, the, the, the push around this. Uh, and, uh, and, and have been, you know, shaping the nomenclature, the, the discussion uh, around, you know, what the problem is. Uh, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, it's not data-driven. Uh, and so we, we are, uh, you know, using uh, solutions in search of a problem uh, as opposed to uh, being able to really address, uh, you know, core problems as they exist. Mm -hmm. Can I just jump on um, yeah. that point, Alana? I mean, I, I think it's so important to, to recognize what Garrett just pointed out, which is that the firms that seem to be leading the charge here and that are being emulated by other firms and that are defining what the problem is and how to solve it right. are firms that have not solved it themselves. And we know that because the big tech firms, Facebook, Google, Pinterest, they publish their numbers. They put their numbers out there every year. And not only are they terrible in terms of, for example, Black and Hispanic workers in the in tech jobs and in management jobs, that they are not improving because it's been five or six years or more since a number of these companies have been putting out their numbers. So, I mean, if I were to tell you that we should all be copying firms in the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. because they have the best workplace safety record, and then if I were to show you that they have the worst workplace safety record, would you copy them? Now, I don't know if pharma has a bad workplace safety record, right. but it just seems like you should be copying firms that have a good record at the thing you are trying right. to benchmark. And it's not what we're doing. I think, I mean, that that particular fad, I think, Garrett, is just insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think that's exactly right, Frank. And, and these are hugely successful companies full of very, very smart people. Uh, and so if they ran the business, the core business, uh, you know, based on uh, the, the, you know, data that, that they uh, have collected on uh, their DEI efforts, 
they would be bankrupt. They would be insolvent <laughs> because they have made no progress. <laughs> the numbers are going down, not up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so it, it is a real concern that they are shaping uh, national discussions around you know, where we should be heading uh, as various industries or as, as society, as, as the country. This seems like a good place to, to maybe put this in, which is that you know, when we think about um, you know, what success looks like, and you know, again, to Frank's point and to Garrett's point, and, and, and all of you have actually said this in different ways, which is that why are corporations not modeling what success is? And so I want, to make two, I want to make two claims and I want to see how they land with you. One is that because there is not a clear definition of what success looks like. So there's the sort of numbers and sort of well, how diverse is your workforce? That's, that's a metric I don't know. But again, if it were all about that metric, then, then we think you know, probably corporations would be making different decisions, right? So it's like, it can't be, that can't be the whole of it. So one is this issue of you know, what does success looks like? And then the other is this question of why is there, how do you explain the lack of reflection on, you know, well, what we're doing isn't working or it doesn't seem to be achieving the, either the numbers or the climate that we're trying to achieve. So why don't we, why don't we sort of think about that and what we could do to make that work? And this is what I, this is the assertion, which is that my sense is, is that there's a, there's a pervasive perception that we just need to get this information into people's heads. And if they're not getting it, if we're not getting the outcome that we want, then it's because we need to figure out a different way to get it into their heads. And so the idea is that if people had the same information, um, whether it's about microaggressions, about unconscious bias, about um, you know, the role of intent versus harm or that intent, you know, impact versus intent, um, that we would all somehow be on the same page. And this is, speaks sort of to the broader organization of Heterodox Academy, which is, I, I think that baseline assumption is flawed, right? Which is this, again, so the assumption that I'm talking about is this idea that if we all had the same information, we'd all sort of be on the same page and we'd create the culture that we want. And so then it's just a question of how can we get this information into people's heads and get people to understand. And my suspicion is that that's not right. And so I'm curious how that lands with you. It, it, it resonates with me, uh, Alana. You know, the, the beatings will continue until morale improves kind of approach. I have a t-shirt that says that. Is, is that right? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good t-shirt. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, many uh, uh, people who uh, have uh, had to en endure these types of trainings uh, over the years, uh, you know, as early as, you know, 2012, 2013, uh, when Google really led on uh, on you know pushing these these types of trainings, uh, and uh, and it's painful, uh, and uh, and you know I, I've heard dehumanizing, demoralizing, um, you know, and uh, and so it's it's unfortunate, yes, that um, that it, it seems like that's the the approach uh, uh, that's being taken is, is that we can you know sit people through re-education camps uh, and force them to to think uh, about. Uh, uh, various topics, difficult conversations, uh, uh, using uh, you know flawed methodologies, flawed frameworks, uh, then then you know we will solve this problem. Uh, you know rather than looking um, at, at the problem as you know how are individual people unique, uh, and, mm -hmm. and how can we focus on uh, the uh, the individuality of people uh, and their characteristics, uh, or, or they're just their individuality as opposed to trying to categorize people. Uh, mm -hmm. Into into these buckets, uh, and and so it's it's a it's an unfortunate approach uh, that just seems to have been embraced and adopted. 
uh, mm -hmm. widespread. So, so I guess I, I, I do want to say a couple of things. One yeah. is that when we oftentimes I think in some of these conversations, we engage in fungi and just vaguely, perhaps inaccurately call some sort of status quo bias, some sort of the fact that the existing state of the world is that many of these companies that we talk about are not particularly diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the question that sometimes gets raised is, well, how do we justify these sorts of trainings, these efforts to become more diverse? Is diversity good for businesses? Is there a business case? I, I would challenge people and just kind of flip that and ask the other question that actually, you know, there's no research as far as I know that shows that homogenous teams perform better than diverse teams, that homogenous leadership, homogenous boards better perform better than diverse boards. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, I'm going to take it as a given that most people believe in fairness and justice, at least mm -hmm. on some level. And mm -hmm. so I think when you think about this, the fact that, well, a lot of these companies are very homogenous and do not at all reflect, for example, base rates of population along many different dimensions in the U US, mm -hmm. there is kind of a question of, well, how, do, how should companies be justifying their existing homogeneity? Mm -hmm. And so if when you think about it that way, I think that explicit efforts like DEI programming, like trainings, if you believe that there's a genuine commitment to trying to increase diversity to better reflect a general population, then I think that it potentially comes from a good place. But of course, we're talking about this fact that while many of these programs are not evidence-based, why is this the case that these companies are continuing to do these sorts of practices that maybe they know or choose not to know whether or not they work? Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets to this question about motivations. And in many ways, if you think about the compliance reasons, the legal reasons, some of my own research suggests that for a lot of companies, they're tending to diversity for impression management reasons. That the reason why they emulate a company like Google is because they think, well, if it's good enough for Google, it helps Google stay out of the news, although that's a questionable thing, whether it's actually su successful at doing that, then it should be good enough for our company. And it doesn't necessarily come from a genuine place of recognizing or thinking that diversity is a moral imperative and that they should find some way to justify their homogeneity if they are very homogenous. Mm -hmm. And so if we take the lens of thinking, well, the unfortunately more cynical view that many of these companies are engaging in these practices, not because they actually genuinely want to increase diversity, but because they're doing this because they want to avoid negative scrutiny, they want to avoid being called out for lacking diversity, then I think that that can also be a helpful lens to understand why these companies might be continuing to pursue programs that either are not evidence-based or that they choose not to even measure whether or not they're actually effective. Right, no, I think you raised some important, I wanna I'll let, give Frank a chance to weigh in here, but those are great points, Edward, thank you. Well, I think Edward's point goes back to your original question of why are companies doing this? and what's the goal yeah and i think there are different goals at different levels in a firm and you know that's one i mean I, I think we tend to um personify the firm to think of the firm as an individual actor but having spent a lot of time interviewing ceos and chief diversity officers and line managers and firms i feel like they have they all have different stories about why they do it and a lot of a lot of CEOs will 
really double down on this is a meritocratic firm. You only get ahead by being good. The cream rises to the top mm -hmm. and we don't really have a problem. But, and so if that's really the way they feel, uh, they may be doing this, they may be perfectly happy with a diversity program that doesn't change what management looks like, that doesn't change what the skilled jobs and professional jobs um, look like. Now, when you talk, talk to the chief diversity officer, often they have a different story. You know, they really want the firm to change. Those, those people are, tend to be women and people of color. Um, and to be honest, some CEOs will say, well, well, you know, they have a vested interest in making changes, but the firm is operating well. Look how successful we are. So I think the, the irony is that although, well, what Edward says about the research on homogenous teams and homogenous boards, I mean, he was understating. If anything, the research shows that you're better off not having homogenous teams and boards. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's easy if you're in a successful firm to look at things and say, we're doing great. Why would we change any, every, anything? Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder how committed chief, um, chief executive officers and presidents of colleges and universities are when they say they believe in diversity. Um, I, I do feel like there are so many things that firms and universities could be doing that they don't do that would just be kind of no-brainers. Recruiting more widely so you get a wider pool of talent. How, mm -hmm. not, not, enough not enough companies go to historically black colleges and Latinx serving institutions. They all go to the Big Ten and the Ivies, for example. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there are pretty straightforward things that companies and universities could be doing that they, they're not doing. And it makes me question how committed um, leadership is to changing. Because I will say that in our interviews with chief diversity officers, often they'll just say, I, there, are, there are so many things I wanna do, mm -hmm. but the CEO says it will be too expensive or too disruptive or it will alienate people. And so I can't do all the things I wanna do. I just wanna cut. Yeah, uh, sure. that really quickly, uh, Alana, uh, to to Edward's point, uh, you know, I think the the challenge for for some who genuinely believe uh, in the importance of having diverse uh, backgrounds, experiences, viewpoints uh, at the table at the company, uh, the 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 challenge, the burden should be uh, on those who want to see more, uh, you know, data driven, evidence driven uh, approaches to offer. Uh, those type of turnkey uh, uh, solutions, uh, um, you know, the the uh, peddlers uh, of of uh, you know data, uh, non data driven uh, uh, methods, uh, you know, they're they're a dime a dozen. There's lots of people who are who are selling those approaches, uh, and so that's a lot of the feedback that I got uh, when when I would talk to uh, uh, decision makers, purchasers uh, within HR, uh, you know, head of people. Uh, of various positions of decision-making within these tech companies is bring us a better solution. We, we were all ears, you know, uh, what should we be looking at? Uh, and and I, I didn't have anything to offer them, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and so I think that that has to change, that there needs to be something uh, uh, better uh, uh, to offer. 
Um, and uh, and then to to uh, Frank's point, you know, I, I am I am less uh, optimistic. You know, I, I think that a lot of these tech companies have proven uh, that if they really want to build a product, uh, penetrate a market, uh, you know, build a business, uh, they are more than capable of taking on a challenge uh, and uh, and solving a problem. Uh, and uh, and so you know the the failure to make real measurable progress uh, on this issue to me speaks volumes. The diversification of the applicant pool seems to be at some level the easiest piece of all of this. I mean, maybe I'm being naive, I don't know, but at least from, from where I sit, it seems because there are tangible things you can do, sort of like what just Frank just said, you can go, you can recruit from outside the big 10 and the Ivies and sort of elite institutions. That seems like a fairly straightforward thing to do. Um, and so the diversification of the applicant pool seems more straightforward than some of the other, than some of the other information and some of the other pieces that get sort of folded under diversity, equity, and inclusion training and programming. Um, I guess I also wonder, it seems like there is a way, you know, if, we're, if there's a sense of questioning the sort of commitment or the devotion on the part of different companies, I can imagine a scenario where you could have, I'm just sort of channeling this position where you could have somebody who is, you know, who is sort of at some level, quite committed to diversifying the workforce, but may have concerns about what the best way is to do that. Um, and that it's not being, having a sort of moral commitment to that goal doesn't necessarily indicate what the right way is to go about doing it. Maybe I'm making excuses, but that does seem, it seems like something that is certainly a factor, at least I imagine for some, for some organizations. To what extent do you think that unconscious bias training, based on what we know, based on the research, should be part of um, these trainings? If at all. So personally, I think until I see affirmative evidence that one of these sorts of unconscious bias trainings is actually effective at changing people's behaviors, I think there's a preponderance of evidence that suggests that they're not particularly effective. Mm -hmm. And there's interesting research, for example, by Natalie Dahmeyer and Ivy Onyader, which actually suggests that too much focus on the concept of implicit bias or unconscious bias makes people feel like, you know, discrimination is actually not as much of a problem because, oh, people can't really control it. And so in some sense, a focus on unconscious bias or implicit bias may actually make people less committed to actually trying to change things because they feel like it's more immutable, it's actually less able to be changed. And so in some ways, actually, there's, I think some research suggesting that if there's an absence of positive effects, there's some, there's certainly evidence that suggests it could also have negative effects. Frank, do you have thoughts or? In, in our research, we see that some kinds of training are better than others. Mm -hmm. um, so we see, for example, that making training mandatory is more likely to lead to decreases in the diversity of the managerial ranks after five or 10 years. Um, uh, offering legalistic training where often you, they start out by, if, especially in live training, they'll start out by talking about major cases that have been uh, uh, lost by big companies and the amounts of money they've lost, the Texaco case, the, uh, the Coca-Cola case, for example, Mitsubishi. Um, so we see that 
it's better not to make training mandatory because it feels less accusatory, especially for managers. If you say, we have this menu of training options, if there's something you'd like to know about, like what does it mean to, um, to try to create more opportunities for the disabled? What does it mean to, um, to try to open the workplace to the LGBTQ community? So if people have options, they appear to be less likely to have adverse, or training appears to have, to be less likely to have adverse consequences. I, I personally think that it's wrong to focus on managers' biases, which is what most training does, because it will activate those biases. Um, and because, it's not something that we can really change. We don't have evidence that you can, through training or other similar means, actually alter the biases that people hold. The stereotypes you hold have taken, taken hold in your head over your lifetime. And there's, there isn't really anything that you can do in a couple of hours or days or weeks that will have a significant effect, but you can change how workplaces operate. And that's why I, when, when we look at lots of different practices at once, we see a kind of pattern in which things work. The things that work are things that, first of all, get managers involved in solving the problem. So that, that would include, for example, recruiting at historically black colleges and Latinx serving schools where managers go out and recruit people for, for their departments. Um, it would include putting in wide open mentoring programs. That solves the problem of the fact that if you, if you have informal mentoring, it's mostly white men who end up being the beneficiaries of all that mentoring expertise. It would include, and. So basically you need, an, you need to offer a mentor to everybody and, and tell people of color and women, this means you, we want you to have a mentor. Um, firms that democratize skill training and management training, you know, in too many organizations, you get a skilled job because you have a buddy who has that job and he shows you after work. And too many organizations, you get a management job because you know somebody in management and that person shows you the first couple of steps, shows you how to deal with the HR information system or how to deal with accounting. And then suddenly when there's an opening, you already are halfway to being a manager because you know some of those skills. So we, one of the things we see is that firms that open up uh, training to everybody that have put in formal training programs and let anybody apply for them, skill training and management training, they see dramatic increases in managerial diversity and in the diversity of the skilled ranks. I feel like there are a lot of, so there are a lot of components of this career system that if left informal end up being very exclusive, they end up being like a white boys club. And if, if there's a way to open them up to other groups, in our research, we see big positive effects on the actual numbers and there's sustained effects on the, on the numbers of diverse people in management. They're sustained in that five or 10 years later, they're not going away. Um, so I feel like we're just, we're, we're addressing the wrong problem. The, we think that the problem is just in managers' heads. And if you made bias go away, 
the problem would disappear. But even if you could make that bias go away, you wouldn't change what colleges get recruited at. You wouldn't change who gets informal mentoring unless you make it formal and get everybody involved. You wouldn't change who gets informal training for the better jobs because that's how it works most places and you've got to make it formal and make sure people um, get involved. And you know, one of the things that we find, the, the single thing we find to be most effective when we looked at dozens of different DEI programs is putting in a diversity task force that has the job of basically institutionalizing change by just looking at the numbers every quarter and trying to figure out why there's attrition of black women in this department and why there's no hiring of Hispanic men in that department and coming up with solutions. Um, so that's, I feel like we need to change the systems and we're just so focused on changing what's in people's heads that we lose, we lose focus on the prize. Like, what are we really trying to do? I don't, and we just don't have evidence that changing that you can change what's people in people's heads. We do have evidence that contact with other groups will change what's in people's heads and mm -hmm. seeing people of color and leadership will change how we think about leadership. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like we're addressing the wrong level. Yeah, and I just wanted to double click on uh, some examples that Frank uh, just offered because um, you know the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, we, we continue to turn to them, at least I do, uh, but, you know, they have a massive amount of money that they have been throwing at this problem uh, over the past few years. And so it's not just the training that's uh, obligatory uh, when people are onboarded or the training that they uh, require people to do on an annual basis, but they have launched partnerships with Howard University, with the United Negro College Fund, uh, you know, call, uh, uh, programs, interventions, uh, trying to uh, touch pipelines earlier uh, during the K-12 life cycle. Uh, I don't know to what extent uh, there are any uh, studies or research uh, uh, that point to the impact that this might be having. Of course, building up the pipeline, uh, there's going to be lagging indicators, so it may be too early to know what impact uh, there has been. Uh, but uh, I think those are all positive investments uh, that, that these uh, companies should be making and trying to achieve the outcomes that Frank uh, uh, was describing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I will be looking to see what type of data we see regarding the effectiveness uh, of, of those. But, but what Frank has suggested is that, you know, we, we have research that points to those types of interventions being, uh, interventions being a, a, you know, good ROI um, uh, when it comes to moving the needle. So uh, to their credit, um, at the big tech companies, we have seen uh, a variety of efforts to address this problem. Uh, I don't know to what extent that is, uh, you know, the case in, in other industries as well. So I want to just thank all of our panelists. Thank you, Garrett and Edward and Frank for joining us tonight and offering such rich and thoughtful insights on this topic, this important topic that you've all been thinking about. Thanks to Frank Dobbin, Edward Chang, Garrett Johnson, and moderator Alana Redstone. If you enjoyed this event, learn more about our heterodox approach to thinking on diversity training at heterodoxacademy.org DEI. You're listening to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Subscribe and leave us a review.
I'm Zach Roush. Thanks for tuning in.